Hi everyone, I'm Chelsea Damon and welcome to the Loopcast. So today we're doing a show on organized crime and terrorist financing and the intersections that we find in these two topics. So um, I'm very excited because this is something that we've been wanting to do a show on and we have a fantastic guest today to talk about this subject. We have Mr. Chip Ponzi who is the co-founder and president of the Financial Integrity Network. So first of all, Chip, thank you so much for coming on the show to discuss this topic with us. Chelsea, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for thinking of me and for your interest in what I agree is a very important uh, topic. And the Financial Integrity Network is a premier strategic advisory firm which is dedicated to helping its clients strengthen the financial integrity needed to succeed in today's global security environment. So Chip has a lot of powerful um, positions to have to take care of in that job. I mean, that's a tough one to do. There's always something going on in the world. And he also served as, or he actually still serves as a senior advisor for the Center on Sanctions and Illicit Finance at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. And he previously served as an interim head of financial crimes and compliance at one of the world's largest banks. From 2002 to 2013, Mr. Ponzi also served as the inaugural director of the Office of Strategic Policy for Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes and senior advisor at the U.S. Department of Treasury. So he has a long history and a long career in this field. So once again, thank you for being on the show to discuss this. Thanks, Chelsea. And I also want to want to thank the, the listeners for, for their attention and their interest in the topic. And uh, you for a very kind and elaborate introduction. Uh, let's get started. Yes, exactly. To start off, why don't you briefly describe modern finance and how it relates to organized crime and terrorism? Great question. So I think maybe the, the easiest way to, to answer that is to start with the premise that financial information and financial action have proven to be essential components of our criminal justice, national security, collective security strategies over the past uh, two or three generations. And that that concept of financial information and financial action or disruption has expanded from an initial premise or idea in the context of money laundering, which in and of itself has expanded, to encompass really the full suite of threats that we face to our national and collective global security. When you think about um, the relationship between the financial system itself and the threats that we are trying to combat, which gets to your question, those are two uh, sets of developments that in their own right have been incredibly dynamic and interesting over the past 20, 25 years. The financial system itself has grown to be much more expansive, sophisticated, intermediated, globalized, and organized crime and terrorism, like legitimate businesses, have also become more globalized, more intermediated, and more interconnected. So when you think about the relationship between modern finance and organized crime and terrorism, that relationship in general has become more important and more complicated. And when looking at this, we always hear about international and domestic financial laws. 
So looking at this, where do we place the relationship between both international and domestic laws for banks and companies with organized crime and terrorist financing? Well, in, in, a, in a globalized economy and globalized markets, what are national or domestic approaches to managing those economic relationships um, become difficult. And so you've seen the emergence of a global commercial economy and set of services that is designed to facilitate cross-border movement of goods, services, et cetera, in a globalized economy. International laws become more important in that environment. That includes with respect to banks and finance. When you think about what that means for uh, how criminals or terrorist organizations may take advantage of those globalized commercial services, um, it becomes uh, critically important to recognize that domestic laws that hinder the ability to share information or to um, track and trace what might be criminal or terrorist behavior across the financial system um, becomes extremely problematic. So um, international law uh, in the sense that uh, global standards that facilitate or require uh, financial companies, banks to share information, to cooperate uh, with domestic authorities in tracking and tracing um, illicit finance, whether from organized crime or terrorism financing, becomes, becomes really important. And looking at that, we have all of these international institutions for the moving of currency like SWIFT, S-W-I-F-T is the acronym. I mean, how do those fit in the equation and how can we monitor those on such a big scene, the international scene? So institutions like SWIFT, it's a great example of how the legitimate global economy, and in this instance, the, the global financial system, has... Uh, developed institutions that facilitate cross-border trade and legitimate economic and financial services. So SWIFT is, for those that, that may not know, it's, it's a consortium of, of global banks that um, it's a cooperative. It's owned by effectively the global banking community itself. And it serves its members by operating a messaging payment system, a payment system, a messaging system to support cross-border payment. Um, in ways that are essential to the operation of the international financial system today. So it's, it's a critical uh, stakeholder in uh, the operation of the financial system and the safety, soundness, and security of the system. And their cooperation has been um, essential in helping uh, counterterrorism and uh, anti-crime authorities in tracking and tracing uh, illicit flows across borders um, through uh, wire transfers and transactions that utilize the SWIFT messaging system. Does that help prevent some of these funding, organized crime funding, terrorist funding? Is is it a good method? Are we seeing positive results in, in tracking financial transactions with the SWIFT method or not so much? Without a doubt, it's been, it's been, essential. It's been essential to um, counterterrorism finance and, and combating uh, organized crime, money laundering, uh, to the extent that those organizations are utilizing the formal or the regulated financial system, and to the extent that in utilizing the regulatory, sorry, the formal financial system, that uh, these organizations are taking advantage of cross-border wire transfers, um, payment services that SWIFT supports. 
um, it's not enough, right? I mean, to the extent that SWIFT is the sort of central nervous system of information for cross-border payments, which is a good way to think about it, then we certainly need that system, in this case SWIFT, to convey the information that is useful or necessary for um, counterterrorism or um, anti-crime authorities to identify, track and trace illicit finance across the financial system. But it's not enough, right? Because it's not as if um, the anti-crime authorities or law enforcement in general, um, counterterrorism authorities in general, have blanket access to the financial system. The financial system is effectively operated by the market, um, which is to say centrally the banks and then um, peripherally but not inconsequentially non-banks, whether um, you're looking at capital markets and broker-dealers and futures commission mer merchants or commodities, or whether you're looking at money service businesses like Western Union. Um, the private sector effectively is the front line of the financial system and uh, their cooperation, their understanding, their support is essential to extracting information that SWIFT may have, uh, for example, on cross-border wires and having that information available for counterterrorism or law enforcement authorities. Uh, their cooperation is also essential in reporting information that is uh, particularly of interest or concern to um, our uh, law enforcement and counterterrorism authorities. What about when organized crime or terrorist financing individuals involved in, in these groups, what about when they use informal ways of money transaction I think um, something like the Silk Road for me comes into mind where you have this way of sending money, but there really isn't the same type of trail with something like SWIFT that you might have. So how do you deal with something like, for instance, the Silk Road or other ways of financing illicit activities that are behind the scenes? Yeah, great question. And, and uh, the key there is your use of the word informal. So the reason why I think that's key is the the financial services that legitimate and illegitimate actors rely on to do everything from uh, you know grow economies to um, to to launder money those financial services can be offered in either a regulated environment or an unregulated environment and uh, when you say informal to me formal and informal are proxies for regulated and unregulated where we have legitimate financial demand and need, which is to say legitimate economic, commercial, financial um, interests, those interests should be serviced in a regulated financial system. To the extent that we have legitimate financial needs and demands that are not being met through regulated financial channels, it puts pressure on uh, the development of unregulated or alternative financial systems, and those can be sophisticated in the form of internet-based payment systems like virtual currencies that may not be regulated in certain jurisdictions, one example of which would be Bitcoin and the Silk Road uh, case that you referenced, or they can be uh, fairly unsophisticated in the form of um, cash-based movements, trade-based movements, or um, sort of these whole-dollar movements of uh, what has historically been unregulated money money or value transfer operations. Um, but what's important to recognize is that as a central policy of financial governance and of financial security, the notion is that 
our financial institutions and our financial systems should be able to service all of the legitimate demands and needs that uh, the global community has uh, with respect to their economic, commercial, financial, developmental interests. And to the extent that we do not do that and we allow for or uh, even encourage in some ways unregulated financial channels, then we've got a real problem in having any sort of security, stability, safety, soundness, or protection in those unregulated channels. That's a, that's a basic premise. With that premise, if you are an illicit actor and you're trying to launder money or you're trying to move money for illicit purposes, including to support terrorism, of course you would rather be in a system where you're not being watched. And so to the extent that you have systems that are allowed to develop and, uh, and uh, proliferate um, in an unregulated environment and that offer financial services that bad guys need, then those alternative or informal or unregulated systems become vulnerable to abuse. And it's for that reason that there's a central policy interest in making sure that legitimate services are regulated so that they're protected, right? Whether it's the consumer or the institution or the industry, um, that they're protected. And so where you have a virtual currency or a technology like Bitcoin, um, in instances where those technologies or, or alternatives are not regulated, you're going to see exploitation of that vulnerability. And that's exactly what Silk Road represents. What do we do about that is an interesting question. So in the United States, virtual currencies, of which Bitcoin is one, are in fact regulated. They're regulated as money transmitters because they're, one of their primary functions is to move value from person A to person B. And as such, they functionally uh, meet the definition of a money transmitter. So they're regulated, regulated in the United States by the U.S. Treasury Department, by um, FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, uh, as money transmitters. But that's not necessarily true around the world. And other jurisdictions are taking you know, different approaches. Some are regulating, some are not regulating and continuing to sort of watch the space and see how it unfolds. Others are criminalizing it. And uh, where you don't have a common global approach to uh, the development of payment systems or alternative financial systems, you create um, additional risk because in a globalized financial system, what may start as a problem in one jurisdiction that is not identified because it's happening under a radar screen in a system that's not regulated may end up in a different jurisdiction in a regulated financial system that doesn't understand or see it because it never saw the point of entry. So, you know, Silk Road, virtual currencies, Bitcoin um, are, you know, it's an interesting example or, or case study into the broader challenge of financial governance and trying to uh, ensure that while we have an innovative, dynamic and continually progressive financial system that encourages the development of new product services like virtual currencies, that we do so in an environment that is regulated, protected, secure, so that um, the vulnerabilities associated with unregulated systems are not exploited by criminals that then in that access to informal systems, either one, get the services they need, or two, even worse, get the services they need and also access regulated financial institutions through the back door of unregulated, unregulated industries or sectors. So continuing on that note, we're talking about regulated and unregulated financial systems. And to sort of flip the coin, excuse me, we have a lot of non-state actors and then we have state actors that are also involved in organized crime. And looking at this, 
do you view non-state actors as having eclipsed state actors in the arena of transnational organized crime? And if so, why? Um, great question. So normally that's the question that's presented in the terrorism context, right? Because we, we, We've seen historically the, the authority to designate state sponsors of terrorism, whether Iran or Cuba or Sudan, Syria, um, others in the past, uh, North Korea, Libya, um, et cetera. North Korea is still being a designated state sponsor, but um, as far as I recall. In any event, um, the notion of state sponsorship, whether for terrorism or for organized crime, and, and for organized crime there isn't actually a formal designation of state sponsorship, but you know, what, what does this mean? What, what, what do we mean by state sponsorship conceptually? It, it is an important preface to, to answering the question of the relevance of states versus non-states and, and the problems that we're trying to, to address, whether crime or, or terrorism. And, and I, I like to think of the state sponsorship, state sponsorship, sponsorship issue excuse me, in, in one of three lanes. You have jurisdictions that are um, deliberately, actively supporting um, activities or organizations of criminal or terrorism concern. Um, and, and those are effectively organized crime states or state sponsors of terrorism. And, uh, you know, we, we've heard about, you know, the sort of narco states of the past, um, whether you want to sort of point to the 80s in Colombia, which is, you know, Colombia is so far from where they were. It's it, it just, I, I hesitate to use it as an example, but it's one that everyone understands in the 80s and, and the drug wars of the 80s where you have narco-states that, um, that become captive to the interests of drug lords or organized crime. Um, you have state sponsors of terrorism like Iran that, as a part of their uh, 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 foreign policy agenda, deliberately create and, and support terrorist proxies in the region and, and globally, and, and that's well understood. Um, but that level of, 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 of capture or um, active support on um, is really only one end of the state sponsorship sort of issue. Because beneath that, you have ranging from, again, a deliberate proactive stance, such as Iran's support for terrorism, to sort of captive states in the form of, um, you know, narco states, to uh, what is a third category of a permissive environment, which to me is more troubling. When, when you're a captive state or when you're an, a, an active state sponsor, um, the world sort of sees you for what you are, and we have authorities that call you out, right? Um, when you are a permissive environment, it is more dangerous in many ways because people don't necessarily see you coming. And what's a permissive environment? Well, that's an interesting question. So um, a permissive environment may be one that, for example, doesn't criminalize money laundering, doesn't criminalize terrorism financing, or criminalizes them but doesn't, doesn't really enforce them or doesn't have any sort of controls to protect their financial system. So no real AML, anti-money laundering controls, no real counterterrorism financing controls. And by that, I mean no real customer due diligence, no reporting requirements, no record-keeping requirements, or else lacks implementation of these requirements, right? These are all requirements that are well understood and have been proliferated over the past three decades under global standards, but they're not necessarily well implemented. And some of that is due to permissiveness by jurisdictions that have not prioritized or considered these issues to be particularly important in combating organized crime or terrorism. And, and so when you get back to your question of 
are state actors or non-state actors more or less of a problem for terrorism or for organized crime? The answer is they're ultimately both um, a problem in the sense that if you have jurisdictions that far from uh, actively supporting uh, terrorism or organized crime, allow a permissive environment, then they can become a tremendous problem. If you have non-state actors uh, that continue to perpetrate the crimes, which is overwhelmingly what we historically continue to face in the form of transnational organized crime, those transnational organized criminal groups understand where they are allowed more or less safe haven, including financially. And so they will operate, they will go to the financial industries, institutions, and jurisdictions where their uh, transactions and their interests are um, best protected. So in that sense, you know, they, they sort of operate hand in glove. And when looking at this further and examining operations and organizations, do you see similarities or differences between transnational criminals and international terrorist organizations at all? Uh, very important distinctions historically. Uh, maybe less so now, but um, a great question. So, you know, historically, I, I think folks uh, probably appreciate that uh, some baseline differences between terrorist organizations and criminal groups start with uh, the very purpose of the group. When you think about organized crime, the purpose of organized crime is to make money. It's a profit motive, right? So crime is an end in and of itself, and, and that's the activity that we're trying to combat. When you think about terrorist organizations, um, terrorist organizations exist to basically perpetrate um, uh, terrorist activity in support of some other end, whether it's the foundation of an Islamic State um, or uh, an independence movement um, or um, recognition of, uh, of a minority set of interests or whatever it may be. Um, terrorism is a means to an end for terrorist groups, and finance is a means to an end in that in that capacity. So if a terrorist organization, whether again, Islamic State or Al-Qaeda or Hamas or Hezbollah or the FARC or Boko Haram or others, um, finance is a, is a means, it is a need to advance the interests of the group, which in and of themselves are not about profit or finance. They're about achieving some ultimate political objective through terrorist activity, right? And, and the transnational organized crime group um, finance for them is an end. They want profit. So they commit crimes in order to make money, and then in making money, they require financial services that really are kind of an end state in and of themselves. And so you know, that's an important distinction in, in, in thinking about the entire relevance of finance to both groups. The relevance for both groups is, is essential, but for different reasons. And then that gets to the second distinction, which is that what we do to combat terrorism financing or um, the money laundering associated with terrorist groups and then organized crime, respectively, is pretty different, right? And that for terrorism financing, what we're looking at is how do we disrupt sources and conduits of financial or material support from getting to terrorist groups or terrorist activities? How do we do that? It's, it's, it's all about the endpoint or the distribution or the end use or the beneficiary of a financial transaction, relationship, et cetera. For organized crime, it's the opposite. It's about the front end, right? The source of funds, the source of wealth, is it for coming from legitimate or from illicit activity? So, you know, that's a second really fundamentally important distinction. Money laundering associated with organized crime, 
is looking at illicit funds, the source of, of funding, whether it's illicit or legitimate. Terrorism and terrorist financing is looking at the end use of funds for support as to whether it's legitimate or in support of a terrorist organization or activity. That said, you know, those fundamental differences of objectives and then um, our efforts to defeat uh, financial needs for both terrorist groups and international organized crime, our, our, our efforts to combat those threats rely on a fundamental common premise, and that is, among other things, a transparent financial system where we understand where money's coming from and where it's going. Who's in our financial system? Who's in our financial institutions? Who they're transacting with? If we don't understand those questions, if we can't answer those questions, then we don't have the financial transparency we need to identify whether source of funds may be legitimate or illegitimate, whether destination of funds may be for terrorist purposes or for legitimate end use. And so underlying whether organized crime or, or terrorist organizational um, strategies to defeat these threats through a financial lens, underlying both the counterterrorism finance and an anti-money laundering strategy, is the premise that we have that we need a transparent financial system in which we can track and trace what might be illicit and separate it from what is legitimate. We, we will not be able to disrupt terrorism financing in the financial system or disrupt money laundering in the financial system if we cannot identify illegitimate sources of wealth and funds for money laundering or illegitimate uses of funds or support for terrorism if we cannot track and trace. And I completely understand your comparing and contrasting organized transnational crime and terrorist financing, but what happens when we have a group such as the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, ISIS, Islamic State of Iraq and Levant, whatever acronym you want to call them. And we saw that they broke away of Al-Qaeda's traditional means of financing. And you know they came into Syria and parts of Iraq and took over large pieces of land through their violent methods. And like their affiliates Boko Haram in Nigeria, ISIS really draws on the strength of the territory that it populates. And they use that population in a lot of ways to finance themselves. And it's not just financing their terror goals, but they're also financing what they see as a state. So how do we do, or how do we mitigate such financing of an organization when it's very localized? It's a completely different way of keeping their group going almost. Yeah, and then this is also a point, Chelsea. Uh, going back to sort of my 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 structure for for how to think about terrorism financing versus money laundering and sort of destination versus source of funds, um, you know, a fairly simple, straightforward way to think about distinctions and then a commonality of a transparent financial system. But it's not enough. To your point, you know, there there are um, there are different ways organizations. Um, finance their needs, and there are different needs that different terrorist organizations may have. And you've just raised a couple that are particularly relevant um, with respect to ISIS or ISIL or, as you say, whatever we want to call them. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, but um, let's let's break that down. So for any terrorist group, including including I'll, I'll just I'll say ISIL because that's that's how I call them. But um, including for them, uh, there there are three possible. Uh, they they can either raise funds or support from criminal activity or from legitimate activity. 
right? And so if they're raising funds from criminal activity, we've seen this with with um, extortion, with kidnapping for ransom, um, with drug trafficking, there's a convergence effectively between terrorist organizations and criminal groups in order to raise funds for ultimately terrorist purposes, right? We've seen that typology over and over again, whether it's the FARC and drugs in Colombia, whether it's the Taliban and drugs in Afghanistan, whether it's al-Qaeda and kidnapping for ransom, whether it's in the the Levant or whether it's in North Africa, you know, we've seen this, right? And in that sense, both the source and the destination of the funds are a problem. The source is coming from criminal activity and the destination is for a terrorist group or terrorist um, activity. So that can happen. It can also happen that we have terrorist support or funding coming from legitimate sources, right? I mean, otherwise legitimate, which is to say there's nothing illegitimate about the source of funds other than the fact that it's being it's, it's, it's going to the use of a terrorist organization. So rather than being proceeds of crime, these may be charitable donations, right? These may be taxes of legitimate populations and legitimate economic activity. Um, these may be um, uh, uh, charitable activities or actions, whether diverted or whether siphoned or whether um, uh, fraudulently misrepresented. Um, but where looking at the source of these funds, you wouldn't see anything necessarily illegal, right? And, and we look at Islamic State, they do all these things. They, they have criminal sources of funding, right? Um, whether it's through smuggling or through extortion or through um, kidnapping. Uh, and they have legitimate sources in the sense of taxation over a population that they control in the sense of, um, uh, depending on, on your perspective, um, taking a real economy in the church that they control and extracting revenue from that in what might be, in, in the words of some taxation, that is exploitation, um, in the words of some smuggling, in the words of, of other sort of state-owner-controlled um, enterprises like in oil. But Islamic State has this diversity of source of funding across criminal proceeds and across what might be considered legitimate sources from legitimate people. And it complicates the picture of disruption. But it doesn't make counterterrorism financing efforts impossible or any less important. It just makes it a little more challenging or complex. And then that raises the question of, well, what do you do in an instance where you have a terrorist organization that controls territory, uses that territory to finance its operations, and has financial needs associated with managing or maintaining control over that territory? And while ISIS presents this in ways that maybe we haven't seen um, in exactly these terms, it's actually not a case of first impression. The Taliban ran a state for a number of years. Um, Hezbollah runs uh, much of Lebanon. Hamas runs much of the Palestinian territories. Boko Haram runs much of Nigeria, right? So, and when I say run, I don't mean that as an insult to any of those places. It's just a fact of life that we've seen this, we've seen this problem, right? And so what have we learned from that? We've learned that um, in addition to having a terrorism financing strategy that attacks these sources of funding, we have to be thoughtful about how our counterterrorist financing strategy impacts our counterterrorism strategy in those territories themselves. What are we trying to do? Are we trying to isolate and strangle that population? Are we trying to allow that population to survive, including through basic conduits that the, FT, that the terrorist group controls? If so, in what way? So we have licensing authorities that we've used in Gaza in the past to try to help Palestinians that are under the control of Hamas. We, we haven't been clear on how that might work in an ISIS-controlled territory, but 
you know, you have you have millions of people that live in these parts of the world and his interests we want we want to try to service, but we can't really do that when they're controlled by a terrorist group. So that they may, that they themselves may not support. It really complicates the broader political challenges associated with a counterterrorism strategy, and in which a counterterrorism financing strategy has to be integrated, right? So you can't really answer the, the, the questions on the effective terrorism financing strategy absent the broader political considerations. And, and, I, and I think we're seeing that in the ISIS context about um, the question of what do you do about banks that are in the, in, the, in, in the territory itself? Do you cut them off from the financial system? I think the answer is yes. But then what do you do about the local needs of populations that sit within ISIS control? Um, how do we account for that? And I don't have good answers because I don't think there are good answers. But these are the challenges that are presented when terrorist organizations control territories over populations whose interests we, we want to try to we want to be sensitive to, at the same time while disrupting or strangling or ultimately um, dismantling the terrorist group that controls the territory. And we have had prior experience in this in, in other parts of the world. I don't know that we've got great lessons that come out of that, but it's important to consider those experiences as we think about you know what we do as a policy matter in the instance of ISIS. What about individuals that help terrorist financing? Like, for instance, we're seeing, I think it's a current ongoing case with an individual that is related to the oil industry in Syria. And, and there's this idea that, well, let's say speculations that potentially the Syrian government is in some sort of deal with ISIS to move oil and, and gain funds and, and work together. And of course, this is all speculation. We don't know for sure. But how do we deal with that and whether it's a state actor or individuals? And we see sanctions put on individuals a lot of times in cases like these, but I feel like sanctions, not they don't always help the greater picture. They might slowly take a step, step by step with sanctions of actually affecting the big picture, but it's, it's like a slow effect. And what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so... Uh, there were recently some designations by Treasury, by OFAC, the Office of Foreign Asset Control, that highlighted this kind of we're talking about. And, and, and I think that's essential um, to have information in the market about the risks and relationships associated with um, the threats that, that, we're, that we're trying to address or, or, or uh, uh, attack, whether, in this case, uh, the Assad regime um, that we're trying to contain, and at this point, very clearly, we're in a regime change posture um, with respect to Syria or with respect to ISIL, where we're obviously at war with ISIL. Um, and so where you see relationships that demonstrate connectivity across these threats, but that also have connectivity potentially to the global commercial or financial system, it's really important to highlight that and to sanction it so that, um, one, we can we can isolate and further disrupt the financial operations of, our, of the threats that we're facing, and two, that we can serve notice to the financial system and the institutions within it and the global economy. These are actors that you need to avoid, not only as a matter of law, but as a matter of your own uh, uh, systemic integrity, um, that we are now highlighting, identifying, noticing uh, that these actors and networks are part of the problem. And so if you see these, these, these networks or these individuals or companies, wherever you may be, as a financial institution or um, uh, a company, um, you now know that this is part of the problem and you're now required, at least under U.S. law, 
um, to refrain from any activity with them. So it's an essential part of the counterterrorism, counterterrorist financing, and ultimately collective security strategy of the U.S. government has been for a long time. It's, a, it's an essential part of what, what I think has been an effective uh, counterterrorism financing strategy globally, uh, but it, it requires, you know, a consistent um, attention and, 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 and uh, uh, designation um, capability that the U.S. Treasury has thankfully been able to exhibit, um, but which unfortunately I think for much of the world is still very much um, uh, a new issue operationally. I guess what I'm getting at is individual sanctions on people or companies that are involved, say, in the ISIS oil trade, which is a very profitable trade for the group. I mean, putting a sanction on an individual or a company, does it really affect the greater picture, or is it just that when, some, when someone else is off the scene, another person will come on the scene to help with the trade and the illicit finance? It's, I, I think you I think both of your answers are right, even though um, uh, it may not appear that way. I mean, I think in isolation, any any particular designation of, of a particular individual is going to have ultimately a, a fairly muted impact because, yeah, a market will learn to replace itself, and whether it's a drug organization or a terrorist organization, you know, people will replace um, other actors. But it can be incredibly disruptive in the short term. Of taking out, you know, a critical node in a network and really disrupting a broader organization, depending on whether you're targeting what are key nodes or not. Over the long run, um, that designation effort, what I was trying to say is it has to be sustained. It has to be committed so that as networks reconstitute themselves, which is the way of things, that um, the designations follow. And, and OFAC has a uh, very strong track record in this direction, right? So there are literally thousands of designations that OFAC has, has issued in the terrorism context, in the drug trafficking context, and they're starting this now in the transactional organized crime context in order to maintain an aggressive posture on these networks as they reconstitute, either uh, from pre-existing networks or as new networks that replace older ones to try to service the same interests. Um, it's essential that operationally we have authorities, we have resources that maintain attention on the uh, continued evolution of these networks, um, including their reaction to designations as we issue them. Um, so in isolation, any particular designation can be effective for a limited period of time. It can be highly disruptive for a limited period of time. Over time to maintain that disruption, you need a consistent presence. And the fact that OFAC has this is a huge asset to collective security. The fact that the rest of the world still really struggles to, to operationalize this concept uh, is is a real hindrance, and and there are the, the good news is there are lots of things that have been done and will continue to be done to try to facilitate greater global um, implementation understanding of what is effectively a targeted financial disruption campaign, um, and the Europeans have obviously come a long way um, in this with their own sanctions authorities. But at the end of the day, the success of this tool in a global financial system will require the global support of financial centers around the world, which at the moment has been um, overwhelmingly positive from a political direction, but not necessarily operationally capable yet. Another thing that I always wonder about is items that are used to help organized crime or terrorist groups. And, and the one thing that comes to mind uh, with ISIS again is 
the Toyota pickup trucks that we see in photos, the Helix brand, uh, the model, excuse me. And we see a lot of these Toyotas, Helix trucks in images coming out of Syria. And a lot of them are very new and shiny. You can tell they're not old cars that have been in the region for a while. So looking at that, how does the system prevent resellers and third parties selling to organized crime or terrorist groups? Because, you know, there's items that help these groups continue on. And, you know, is it possible to even do that? I mean, if it's not coming directly from Toyota, yet it's a third party selling it to someone in one country and then it travels to Turkey and gets into Syria. I mean, how do you even deal with that? Yeah, yeah. so uh, and that's a really interesting case, and, um, and I'm glad you asked about it uh, because of, of a couple of challenges that the case presents. One is that here's a, here's a commodity, you know, a truck, that is not a financial product, and so it implicates a non-financial institution or company, namely Toyota, a car, a car, a car manufacturer and dealer. Uh, and so we're outside the province of the regulated financial system for the moment, right? We're looking at um, uh, supply chains and distribution chains of Fortune 500 companies whose products are utilized by terrorist groups or organized crime. Um, what can we do about that? Well. As an immediate matter, the financial system isn't directly implicated, um, although there's the financing of whatever transactions were executed in order to land these trucks where they ended up. But the, the, the immediate interest is in how did the actual trucks get from here to there, right? And, and that is a question of what is the supply and distribution chain of Toyota? And is Toyota responsible end-to-end for that? At some point, they sell, they sell and they're out. And, and that's perfectly understandable. But to the extent that they are doing what they should be doing, which is understanding their own supply and distribution chains, they will have a picture of where Toyotas end up um, out of the dealership, through wholesalers, into retailers, into markets that are potentially at risk of this sort of then pass-through to um, uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a retail sense or in a, in a sub-wholesale sense to groups um, that are uh, or, that are either terrorist groups like ISIL, like ISIL or or or, um, or other illicit actors, and so you you need you need to have um, the, the the traceability associated with supply and distribution chains from companies themselves, and then that won't be enough. But that's a, that's a good start. And I, I don't do this for a living, at least not anymore. But I, I, there are people who do this for a living who will then track and trace and look at okay, well there are. Um, distribution channels, operators, and dealers that are sitting in these points around the problem, and let's start to figure out who they're selling to and who ordered, you know, 500 new shiny trucks in the neighborhood um, in the last uh, year, year and a half. How, how does it work? How are trucks distributed in Iraq? How are they distributed in Turkey? How are they distributed in Jordan? Right? I mean, you know, you start to look around the neighborhood and start to, you've got now a confinable search for. Um, you know, a significant ship, shipment of trucks. Um, did it have to come from the region? Not necessarily, but um, if it didn't, it's kind of hard to hide, um, you know, a fleet of hundreds of trucks coming through with nobody seeing it and without having any uh, intelligence that you can collect. So, you know, it's a starting point. It's not going to give you the answer right away, but you can get to the answer if you've got supply and distribution chains that are transparent, if you've got very good international cooperation and intelligence, 
and you start to combine these different sources of information into a picture that begins to hopefully identify um, actors of at least interest, if not concern, that may lead you to um, specific actors or networks um, that are part of the problem. Interesting. So I want to take the talk towards international financial systems and how they protect against abuse. And on that note, after 9-11, we saw the U.S. government, which was led by the Treasury Department, they built this robust system to disrupt al-Qaeda financing and defend international institutional systems, financial systems against abuse. And I was wondering if we could look at this and consider if such frameworks are still viable when dealing with insurgents groups like ISIS, uh, Boko Haram, etc. in today's day and age. Yeah, they, they are they are absolutely essential, Chelsea. I mean, you, you cannot have an effective uh, counterterrorism finance, anti-money laundering, or counter-illicit finance in general strategy that is implemented effectively without maintaining, strengthening the framework that uh, the Treasury Department and other financial centers have worked hard to put in place, particularly after 9-11. You need that framework. It has to be implemented. And then it needs to be adaptable to whatever the present risk may be, whether it's ISIS-ISIL or the Assad regime or Boko Haram or uh, drug trafficking organizations or Ponzi scheme artists, whatever it may be. And it requires, to, to understand why that's the case, you, you have to go back to, hopefully what I said before, which is that the premise of an effective counterlist of finance strategy is that we have a traceable, trackable financial system in which all legitimate financial services are met. And again, this is an ideal. But the idea is that we have a financial system in which financial services are offered and where if bad guys try to operate, we can identify them and we can disrupt them. The only way that happens is if you implement the framework that the Treasury and other uh, other um, uh, financial centers have put together over the past uh, really 25 years, 20, 25, 20, my math is not great. Yeah, around 25 years. But since the criminalization of money laundering in 1986, um, uh, so I guess you'd say almost 30 years. But um, that framework is a framework that, that is designed to achieve the financial transparency we're talking about. Initially, it didn't start that way. It's where it's ended up. And it's also designed to require authorities to have creative tools for law enforcement, counterterrorism authorities, intelligence authorities, to extract the information of relevance from the financial system and to take targeted disruptive action against actors in the financial system. That is what the framework that we put in place is designed to do. How you then apply that to specific threats becomes a question of adaptability. But if you don't have the premise of a transparent financial system where you can track and trace and the authorities and resources and expertise to disrupt when and where we do find illicit actors in the system, then, then you're going to be sort of fatally hamstrung in dealing with ISIS or whatever the problem tomorrow may look like. You need that basic framework in place. It's a difficult framework um, in practice. It's a simple one in concept. A transparent financial system, uh, strong authorities and resources to track, trace, and disrupt. Um, sounds great, much harder to do in practice, but that is what the framework is that we've all tried to put in place globally since 9-11, moving on the back of the EML controls that were developed 
um, over the prior 15 years. What happens when an illicit group, for instance, uses a cash-based method of paying, like literally cash in hand to another individual? I mean, that's a lot harder to track. What do you do then? Yeah, it is. You're right. It, it's hard. It's hard to track. It's not impossible, but it's certainly harder. And it's also harder to operationalize as a group. Uh, for the same reason that, that legitimate people don't want to walk around with thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash. There's there's all sorts of concerns with that. It's 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 inconvenient to get cash from America to Somalia for legitimate uh, reasons to to service the needs of. Somalis in Somalia is a pain in the neck if you got to put in a suitcase, take two plane flights, and get it to where it's supposed to go. It, it takes uh, you know days, not hours. You've got um, real operational risk. You've got real security risk, um, and uh, and so you know at best it's inconvenient. At worst, it's it's, it's a real danger. Um, the same is true for terrorist organizations. Uh, we we've seen, and there are cases you can point to where. Whether it's um, criminal organizations with safe houses stashed with cash that become targets um, in and of themselves for bad and good guys, where cops are trying to find the safe houses and bad guys will raid, will raid other bad guys' safe houses. Nobody wants to be sitting on a ton of cash. It's not fun. It's not safe. Um, and it's inconvenient. So if you're operating in cash, it's already a qualified win if the counterterrorism financing and the, and, and the counter, uh, the, the, the anti-money laundering authorities, if, if if we are forcing transnational organized crime and terrorist groups to deal solely in cash, it's a qualified win. It's qualified because even though it's inconvenient and disruptive and, and costlier or riskier, it's still capable, right? And so then the question becomes, how do we then track and trace in cash? And the good news is we, we do have authorities and mechanisms and means to do that. Um, the bad news is that they're, they're, they're tougher. So you look at cash declaration and disclosure requirements whether for, um, for individuals uh, entering countries or leaving countries. You look at serial notes on currency, distribution of bulk currency, um, and you can start to put some pictures together. You look at cash reporting requirements inside of jurisdictions. We have, obviously, in the United States, a $10,000 currency transaction report by financial institutions, $10,000 cash transaction reports by businesses. So, you know, there are ways to track and trace cash, particularly when it becomes uh, a meaningful volume. But it, it, it is it is more difficult. Um, so uh, I guess I would conclude by, by saying that if we are successful in getting criminal organizations, terrorist organizations, to operate in what are effectively cash-based networks, and we are successful in uh, developing and implementing cash-based controls consistent with global standards, then you know we're, we're doing a decent job. And at the end of the day, that... Um, operational uh, uh, limitations that we may be able to impose on criminal groups or terrorist organizations will allow us to target not only um, cash-based reporting requirements in ways that can help us track and trace a bit, but will also help us localize the collection of street intelligence, which is essential, right? Where we're not going to solve this problem through regulatory reporting. It's an essential part of the problem, solving the problem. But then we have to marry it up with real intelligence collection um, that can be targeted on a sector like cash in a region or geography or conduit that our reporting requirements should be able to eliminate for us. And then we have to have the international cooperation that allows us to exchange that information and ultimately take disruptive action. Um, and that's, 
you know, you look at look at how we got to Bin Laden. You know, it was a cash courier, right? That's how we took him out. Um, and uh, forcing him to operate in cash, I'm sure, was disruptive. And we 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 found it anyway. We found it through street intelligence and through tracking and tracing um, outside the financial system in that particular instance. So it can be done. It is hard, um, but it's a qualified win uh, if we're forcing organizations into that relatively primitive form of uh, financial operation. Going back to the post 9-11 frameworks that were initiated, have we seen illicit organizations evolve to get away from these frameworks and, and have they evolved in their, let's say, their creative means of financing themselves because of the frameworks that were installed? Yeah, with People, people are going to commit crime. They're going to, they're going to do stupid and, and, and mean things, and, and they're going to break laws, and they're going to, they're going to, they're going to have criminal proceeds, and it's going to happen. Um, you know, the, the name of the game in developing an effective counterless finance strategy is to uh, make it harder, costlier, riskier for bad guys to operate, and to protect the integrity of our financial systems. Um, and ultimately the global markets and, um, and sectors that the financial system supports. So viewed through that lens, um, you know, we've been doing, I think, a really good job uh, since 9-11 and building off the back of what was done beforehand to strengthen pre-existing controls, expand them in ways that um, are demonstrably having an impact on um, transnational organized crime terrorist groups as seen by the adjustments that they make. But they're not out of business, right? They just adjust. So. As they adjust, we adjust. And that um, adaptability of the framework that we put in place is essential to maintaining its effectiveness. But you've got to have the, the framework in place to begin with. Then you have to have the intelligence and the tenacity to continue to pursue these uh, illicit actors as they adapt to the, to the requirements and, and the controls that we put in place. Um, how have they done that? They've done that through a combination of what I would consider to be uh, sort of traditional evasion and circumvention and facilitation routes of finance and through uh, new ways of meeting their financial needs. What are some of the, what are sort of the standard typologies? Um, intermediation through fund companies, through um, different financial institutions, through um, different jurisdictions, uh, all designed to separate the actor or activity of concern from the institution that may be looking at, looking for it, right? That's what all those things are designed to do. They're designed to create layers between what is trying to be hidden and the regulated financial uh, institution or, or system that is trying to identify that actor activity. So we see a lot of that, again, from companies, shell companies, um, intermediation through correspondence, whether banking or non-banking MSBs um, or registered or, or, or otherwise, um, we continue to see that, and, and I imagine that, that we will always continue to see that. But we also see new stuff. You see, um, we see the uh, the evolution to your point earlier of virtual currencies. Uh, we see creative trade-based money laundering that has been around for a long time, but is moving uh, into different products at different times and different services. From um, you know phone cards, which were kind of the rage of. Um, some of the Taliban connected financing schemes uh, a few years back to, um, uh, uh, I think it was infant formula uh, with Al Qaeda in the post 9 11 environment. But 
um, you know, these these typologies evolve um, to take advantage of wherever vulnerability may be in the financial system. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, we're going to implicate either regulated financial products and services or um, cash or uh, trade. And um, we've got we've got controls or um, standards with respect to each of those, uh, and we just got to continue to to apply them to respond to the adaptability of the criminal groups and, tra- and terrorist organizations that uh, continue to exploit them. Well, here at the Lipcast to conclude talks, we like to give our guests a moment to either have a final say on something or touch on something that we might not have touched on in the discussion. So I will hand the floor over to you for that. Well, thanks so much, Chelsea. Really appreciate it. And I suppose if I could if I could wrap up with a, with some final thoughts, I would say first of all that. The mission of combating illicit finance is as important as it's ever been, and it will continue to be that way. Um, it's become very clear that the use of financial information to identify, track, and trace illicit activity and actors has become essential to counterterrorism, to counterproliferation, to um, uh, anti-crime authorities around the world. Um, so it's here to stay. Um, that would be point one. Point two is that our ability to effectively develop and apply counter-illicit finance strategies relies fundamentally on a transparent financial system and that that, um, that precondition is constantly under attack because the financial system itself is dynamic, it's sophisticated, it's evolving. And as it evolves in ways that are helpful for legitimate businesses and, and economic interests, we have to be able to maintain the transparency of that system in a way that protects it from abuse. And then the third point is to say that in addition to this mission being as important as, as ever and relying on a transparent financial system, it would rely on, it will continue to rely on the authority, resources, and political will to target um, those that are abusing the system or are supporting the threats of gravest concern. And uh, that is not easy. And we've seen that in um, the challenges associated with operationalizing sanctions on a targeted level. Um, we've seen that in the challenges associated with sharing information that allows us to put together the picture of what these illicit actors look like um, when they operate in multiple jurisdictions. So um, fairly simple set of concepts, incredibly important mission, essential um, to our collective security, uh, reliant on a, tra- a transparent financial system globally that where we can track and trace, and on our ability to uh, take disruptive action against networks when and where we find them. Um, simple objectives, simple concepts, much more difficult in practice for a variety of very good and understandable reasons that we have to continue to be on top of if we're going to continue to draw on the financial information and take the financial action that we need to disrupt the threats from terrorism to organized crime to proliferation to corruption. But um, very much uh, uh, a worthwhile, essential cause, one that I hope your listeners uh, continue to follow and, and, and be engaged in, uh, one where we need a lot of help in the field, um, where there continues to be a huge need for expertise to help uh, help counterterrorism and, and uh, law enforcement authorities um, understand how the financial system is being exploited. That expertise can and should come from the full direct, the, the, the sort of full spectrum of stakeholders from uh, the general public and businesses that rely on, uh, rely on the, the, the international financial system to the banks and financial institutions themselves, to uh, the analysts that are looking at financial information, integrating it with all source information, 
to the investigators that use that information to track and trace and ultimately disrupt um, illicit networks to the prosecutors, sanctions authorities, courts, and political authorities that, that ultimately implement and manage um, these controls. Uh, we, we need help across the board. We will continue to need help, and that relies on the interest and uh, engagement of, of your audience. So very much appreciate the opportunity to, to speak with you today. Thank you for having me, and um, look forward to um, – any follow-up that uh, there may be, there may be, there may be interest in. So, Chelsea, back to you. Thanks again. Thank you so much. And as you said, it's a huge job, and it will continue on because it's a, a non-stop issue. <laughs> it's the best way of saying it. So, thank you once again, Chip, for coming on the show. It's greatly appreciated.